You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. With so many attacks on Islam and the Holy Prophet wasallam, let's set the record straight. He was a man of peace. He went through 13 long years of persecution for his beliefs. He was mocked and ridiculed, but he didn't retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he went to Taif to spread the message of Islam, he was pelted with stones until he was bleeding, yet he did not retaliate because he was a man of peace. When he migrated to Medina, he established the Charter of Medina, allowing the Jews, Christians and Muslims to live together in harmony with full religious freedom because he was a man of peace. And after all the oppression that he faced, when he returned to Mecca as a king, he had the right and the power to punish every single one of them. Yet he forgave them because he was a man of peace. The Holy Prophet ﷺ said that no white man is superior to a black man, no Arab to a non-Arab. Rather, everyone is equal. He freed slaves and taught to treat them as brothers. He did all of this because he was sent as the Rahmatul Lil Alameen, a mercy for mankind. Indeed, the Holy Prophet ﷺ was a true man of peace. Men of peace, how much we are in need of such people at the moment. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. May the peace and blessings of Allah be upon you all. My name is Rohan Ullah Chima and you're joining me on Saturday morning live on a gloomy and grey morning based down here in Morden in London. And I'm joined today by from Sunny Bradford. Uh, Malik Takreem Ahmed is joining us today. Assalamualaikum, Malik. How are you? I'm not bad. Uh, um, you say sunny Bradford, but the north has an unfortunate habit of being even colder weather than, than the south. So I thought I was going back, you know, like I said, my thought to a bit more sunny place, but unfortunately, uh, even more wet and windy uh, upstairs, what's it called, uh, in the north of England. So uh, unfortunately, you've been, you've been let down, huh? You You thought you're leaving the rain and the wind and the storms down here. Yeah, as always, and always, everyone down now, Jason. Um, no, no, it's um, it's been a good break. I've been back for reading week, that's why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and this afternoon, inshallah, I'll be back in. Uh, I'll be back in uh, and ready to another half a semester of uh, being an academic weapon, as they say. Talking about academic, uh, that takes us right into what we're going to be discussing today. So today we're going to talk about some of the reforms that we're seeing in the education system, particularly around the new introductions of the T levels. Um, and then going on to discuss a wider topic linked to um, the mass shooting that we saw recently in the USA, in Maine, and uh, talking around the implications, the purpose, I mean, well, the reason, um, and uh, the comparison of uh, gun laws in the US and the UK as well. But for that, um, as always, um, we will go through our news round. Uh, covering some of the news stories, some main headlines around the world right now. And uh, Malik, why don't you kick us off with what you've got? Sure. So um, the first headline I came across uh, was talking about uh, the COVID pandemic, actually. Um, it seems like we're stuck in last year, two years ago, talking about COVID again. But actually, it was the COVID testimony. And so uh, the government, um, you know, the COVID inquiry you know, has been taken recently. And some of the findings were were, were being released. This week. Um, I found really interesting actually um, the interview and the kind of the evidence given by Dominic Cummings. 
um, who at one time was, you know, the Prime Minister, the most powerful advisor, and, you know, was quite an influential figure, you know, to the public as well. But throughout the, the week, you know, we saw drums uh, and drums, we saw kind of the statements and quotes that he was saying, and they weren't, you know, they weren't amazing. And he was talking about how a macho culture led to overconfidence in the early stages of the pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, even some of the other civil servants he described as that, you know, the atmosphere was like, we're going to do great. Um, and, you know, the environment was macho, the environment was sexist, and key groups like women, ethnic minorities, and the Spanish people weren't represented in the cabinet in these meetings. And so kind of their kind of effects were, were downplayed. What was really interesting to me is that currently um, the master thing at the moment, LSE, one of my professors at him, my personal job, he's a demographer. And what demographers do is they model, uh, you know, his job is to kind of model what different kind of health issues, what kind of effect they'll have on the population. That's one part of his job. And so when COVID struck, actually, there was a London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine which was doing the calculations and modeling for the actual COVID. So, you know, saying how many people will die or predictors die in the next few weeks and the next few months and so forth. And parallel to them, the group at LSC were, were doing one as well. And the government was using their ones at the, the London School of Hygiene Triple Medicine and their figures. But quite early on, uh, our professor was telling us that one of his students kind of made a modeling on, I believe it was the effects of the lockdown and how, you know, how an immediate lockdown would have kind of affected the deaths and how a late lockdown affected deaths. And they did the calculations and figures and presented it to the government or presented it somewhere in, the, in power. And kind of, they kind of ignored it and dismissed it. And they were, I think that the, the death figure would be around half million, I think, uh, or around, around that figure, basically. And the government and the London School of Hydrotropical Medicine, they were estimating around 100,000, 200,000. And unfortunately, the death count was higher because the modulation statistics and the factors they used were a little bit different. Um, but that was interesting to me because the person, you know, the teaching me this model, turns out he's very kind of central to the modeling and that side of, 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 uh, of kind of areas. And actually, he was saying that we knew that this was going to be this bad. Even in the first few months of the pandemic, we knew that this had potential to cause half a million deaths or, you know, quite a lot of deaths. But the government chose to ignore our warnings and go with the slightly lower and kind of go with more relaxed, uh, you know, restrictions. So that was kind of a personal take from this article. I'm really interesting. Mm, I think I think that that was that was a fact that we don't anticipated that in our post-COVID findings we'd see a lot of uh, the weaknesses and the shortcomings that that were displayed throughout the whole process. And uh, I I also read about the fact that a lot of um, trust was lost um, in the leadership of our ruling party, um, and also we saw the consequences of those with the amount of scandals that took place, um, the removal of Matt Hancock, Boris Johnson. Um, and then this trust came in as well, so it's, it's a it, it was a difficult situation. Um, and when your leadership is um, as, as uh, Sir Patrick described, Sir Patrick Wallens described as uh, weak and indecisive, it makes a very difference for the general public as well. Um, but uh, I think I think some of those effects we are still seeing uh, to this day as well. Obviously, a lot of people have been affected. Uh, with losing their loved ones, um, but also specifically financially as well. The impact we've seen um, since COVID has not been reduced or gone away. In fact, it's only gotten worse. But uh, thank you for that, Malik. Um, what we're going to do is, well, what I will do is, um, this is the topic that obviously is being discussed or on all news channels and all media right now, and everyone's um, in one way or another affected. Um or influenced by or 
traumatic even um, the the scenes that are coming out of the Israel and Gaza war right now. So just to put into perspective, um, we also wanted to just discuss some of the live tracker information that has been coming through from Palestine. So it's been four weeks now, um, unfortunately, since the beginning of this conflict. And uh, we are seeing that so far the death toll has uh, almost surpassed what the death toll from Ukraine and Russia war. And why I'm mentioning that is that the Ukrainian-Russia war has it's been 21 months and it's still ongoing. Um, and uh, if we compare that to a conflict which has only been going on for four weeks, it's quite worrying that uh, the death toll numbers match on both occasions. So it shows that the Israel and Gaza war is much, much more deadlier. And if I mention that in Gaza so far, we've got over 9,000 people who have been killed. So around 9,300 almost now, uh, of over half of those being children and women. Um, and injured, we have over around 33,000 now as well. Uh, in West Bank as well, there's been conflict going on, which has been a bit overshadowed in a sense, obviously, um, due to the um, greater uh, conflict which has taken place in Gaza. And in West Bank, we've also had around 140 people who have been killed and over 2,000 are injured. Israel as well saw a massive spur of violence on uh, the 7th of October, um, which has caused the deaths of around reported around 1,400 people and over 5,000 people were injured in this as well with these figures being from either from the Palestinian Health Ministry, um, verified from the Red Crescent Society or from the Israeli Medical Services. Um, and as part of this as well, we are seeing a lot of discussions around um, the other impact which is taking place in Gaza right now and the support they need. And this is related to the lack of food, water and fuel supply that they have currently have in the country. Um, and also medical facilities. So uh, we're hearing news from the ground that uh, oxygen is running out. Uh, we have 50 ambulances damaged. So there's a difficulty for functioning and transportation of people. Um, 51 out of 72 primary care clinics are currently not functioning. And 16 out of 35 hospitals in the Gaza Strip are not functioning which means that we are around 46 of the hospital facilities are not functioning right now in one of the greatest conflicts they've seen um, in, in decades. Uh, and apart from this, uh, the fuel crisis uh, means that uh, patients who are currently in need are infants in incubators, obviously. Pregnant women who get 183 births per day are taking place still due to leading to a lot of complications and there's also news of miscarriages coming through. Uh, 1,000 kidney dialysis patients are waiting for treatment. Uh, cancer patients haven't been able to get the treatment, long-term treatment that's going on. And there are 350,000 non-communicable disease patients, which is diabetes, heart disease, cancer, etc., like I mentioned, um, and all these other things. To put things into perspective per hour, obviously we don't want to just keep... Um, these numbers or people's lives to be just a statistic, but uh, it always helps to understand the situation uh, if we go through the numbers and the facts of the conflict and if we try to break that down as much as we can. For example, in every hour in Gaza, 15 people are killed, out of which six are children every hour, and 35 people are injured, um, and reportedly 42 bombs are dropped according to the first six days of the war, according to the Israeli army, that is, that is the 
um, news that came through there and 12 buildings are destroyed every hour and we've all seen the scenes and the pictures um, in, the, in the age of social media I think not just major outlets and uh, news fronts but even um, individuals on the ground um, have been very vital when it comes to information um, coming out to the public and uh, journalists have been very very influential that are based within Palestine within, the Ga- within Gaza but to be, I've been hearing um, a lot of sad stories when it comes to journalists on the ground as well. Since November the 3rd, as uh, up to November the 3rd, at least 36 journalists have been killed um, in the Israel-Gaza war, uh, which has been the deadliest um, period for journalists, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists, which was set up in uh, 1992, it was. Um, so 31 Palestinian journalists and four Israeli journalists and one Lebanese journalist have been killed so far since October 7th, unfortunately. But uh, in, in regards to this as well, um, I wanted to bring in a second news story because um, I was actually uh, seeing this on Twitter where there was a British citizen who was based in the UK and they were asking about how, what they can do. They were uh, appealing to people to help them in regards to getting their family out of Gaza uh, and what they can do about that in regards to specifically British, British citizens, Britons. So currently there's a process going on where at the Rafa crossing, more Britons leave. So we have nearly around 100 listed as eligible to leave Gaza Strip. So they've been asked to go to the Rafa crossing, which is a crossing between Gaza and Egypt, where aid has also been going in slowly into the Gaza Strip now. Um so the UK section of the Palestinian Border Authority list names for more than 90 people so far. The Foreign Secretary James Cleverly said a number of Britons were leaving Gaza, a development he described as positive news. Uh, he did not figure how many have left so far, um, but he just mentioned that they will continue to work with authorities in the region to ensure as many Britons as possible can leave Gaza, which is a good news for those who have family uh, currently based in Gaza um, and have been distraught and very worried from seeing from the conflict on the TV channels um, with a lack of communications with people on the ground as well. But, Malik uh, Sakrim, you've been in um, areas of uh, where there's been natural disasters or people are looking for aid and help as well. So you know uh, what that situation is like. Um, but what do you think so far of what you've been seeing? Uh, yes, um, not not the you know president at all. But when I was in Turkey after the earthquake in in, uh, in March and February, uh, I kind of saw that the effects of uh, a natural disaster, any kind of humanitarian disaster, uh, is devastating not just for the people. That are there, people like you know the, the healthcare workers that go you know, to help them, um, people giving supplies and so on and so forth. And that was an area that was actually well supported in terms of aid, humanitarian aid, and kind of the support being given by international agencies and domestic agencies. And you know, a key part again provides right to, to education, which we'll go on to later on. But for example, the the international development and health master uh, learning at the moment. This talks specifically about how to respond to humanitarian disasters. The big, the most concerning fact for me is the fact that the humanitarian intervention has been so limited in this Gaza, Israel, and Afghanistan conflict. You know, only the other day that uh, the UN trucks were allowed into into uh, you know the affected areas, that even to the point of information reporting and accurate information reporting, we, the statistics that you read out, for example, they you know there's been they've not been verified per se by a third party source. There's not a third person in there. Other than, Organization is kind of doing all these reporting things, 
And that lack of in- intervention has so many different effects is the point I'm trying to make, basically. And in terms of the statistics you mentioned, the one about children already hits home. I believe, I think, 3,600 3, Palestinian children were killed in the first 25 days of, of the war between Israel and, and Palestine, or Israel and Hamas, we should say. And I think, I believe I read somewhere that in the last four years across any conflict area in the whole world, that's, you know, that's more than any of, of those basic numbers. Um, and so Israel <coughs> or, or Palestinian children more have died in the last month or so than in the last four years across the whole world in conflict areas. And I find that to be quite a poignant, poignant fact because women and children, you know, they're supposed to be non-combatants, uh, people that are not taking part in the war directly. And so their casualties are numbering so big. This is a shock I'm talking about. Then, you know, that's really shocking part behalf of the world. There is somewhere, somehow, there is something going wrong in the world. This many non-combatants uh, in the war, children are being killed on such a large scale. I don't think it's being done to that. And so that, for me, is really a point of contention, really point, you know, to, to think about and to ponder over that. How have we got to this stage and how can we stop this from getting worse? Mm, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, it's a very upsetting um, scenario, situation that we're in right now, which is why at the start of the show I mentioned um, the need for men of peace or for voices for peace which is what His Holiness, Hazrat Mizza Masroor Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, announced this week as well, where an uh, official announcement was sent out from the press and me- his, pre- his own press and media office um, about the encouragement and the um, promotion of voices for peace, um, people to speak up and call for a ceasefire uh, and a solution which ultimately leads to a long-term pathway to peace as well. But just to summarise... Um, as well at the end here, is that before the conference started, there were 200 British nationals that were in Gaza, and a small number have already left after some foreign nationals and injured Palestinian people began to be allowed to go through the crossing into Egypt for the first time from Wednesday. So hopefully we do see um, some help being provided there and relief for not only themselves and also for their family members who um, are having to watch all of this unfold on their TV screens. But uh, thank you very much, um, the cream for those new stories. And uh, we wrap up our news section there and move into or onto our first news story for today, which is in regards to, I said, reformation or changes. I'm not exactly sure which one it is, but uh, to the education system. I guess we'll we'll figure that out over time, whether there is a benefit or not, which is the new T-level qualifications. Um, And particularly, I was going to mention is that all I knew about this was the fact that this was mentioned on the news, uh, Rishi Sunak did make announcements in regard to this, but I'm actually quite surprised in regards to how quickly this has been implemented. And you know what I mean um, once we go through this. But Takrim, do you want to talk us through what the T-levels are um, and how do they work? Yeah, sure. So T-levels, um, <clears throat> in your overall view, they're basically vocational qualifications aimed at 16 to 19 year olds um, after, to be taken after GCSEs. And they kind of focus more on practical subjects rather than the ones. So whereas we have the A-levels, the, you know, the focus on academic subjects, the T-levels are supposed to be more focused on practical subjects. At the moment, for example, there are a number of courses, which is BBIC, and level three, NDQ level three courses, they're called. Um, and so the government is planning to actually defund these courses from August 2024 and replace them um, with T-levels, uh, essentially. <clears throat> and so this is part of the, the government's overall plan to streamline further education. 
And apparently, apparently they wish to introduce an advanced British standard, which is going to replace both A levels and T levels. Um, so essentially, it's a it's a way of trying to st- streamline education in the sense that um, be able to compare everyone with the same yardstick or similar yardstick. Of course, the government is recognising that that certain subjects are more academic, some subjects are more vocational, and therefore there is a distinction between the two. And there's different the difference in the types of work or careers that they lead on to are defined by the differences in A-levels and, and T-levels. Um, to give an example of a T-level, for example, it would include a mixture of um, classroom, uh, classroom learning and on-the-job experience with workplace placement of at least 315 hours, so nine weeks. That makes about, about 20% of the course. Um, and so T-levels are designed for that specific demographic that want to take A-levels or want an alternative to A-levels, um, but also do not wish to take an apprenticeship, which would require a lot more time spent in the working sector, at least 80% it requires usually. Um, so it's a good run, I'd say, between doing A-levels, which are purely academic, uh, and you know, do, going to an apprenticeship. Um, so that is, I think, kind of a, uh, an, an, interesting, um, an interesting approach. Um, I'm not sure what your thoughts on it, but I think this could be quite a good way of recognising both the uh, academic and uh, you know practical sector. More and more so these days, you know, I'm seeing that people are going into vocational subjects. I remember talking to a few of um, my business friends and our friends at the mosque uh, who are you know sitting there. You should see the A level at the moment, and actually those who've gone to university this year, more than you know, a few of them have actually gone into apprenticeships, which I highly encourage because you know, no student loan at the end of it. You've got a guaranteed job. You're learning skills on the job. Um, so, you know, it's quite, um, you know, for me, I think it's quite an attractive prospect. Um, whereas A-levels can sometimes be very high-depth learning, but in areas that you might not use. I remember biology, maths, chemistry <clears throat> at A-level, which is probably the most useful or the most kind of specific A-level requirement for medicine. And actually, of that maths degree, I've known, I think in the first few weeks, I had to learn to multiply by a thousand or something. And I've never ever used kind of any of that maths uh, A levels ever again. And so even in medicine, where it's a specific requirements, that maths A level is really quite quite useless in terms of direct skills. Soft skills we can talk about, of course, mm. um, data processing for a long, long time. But in terms of direct skills, for example, I could have perhaps taken a pre-medicine course or a a pre-medicine A level, which happens in America, for example, um, in terms of a pre-medical undergraduate degree, that might have best served me better, kind of uh, helped me more towards. Against medicine, so I think I really am of the opinion that these T levels are a good idea. B tech sometimes I look down upon, um, unfortunately, in the education sector. And in, there's someone who has good B tech grades, um, someone who has good, you know, just decent A level grades. They are not compared on equal footing, um, due to the supposed kind of lack of uh, strictness and the lack of academic rigor uh, for B techs. Um, and so this is a good way, I think, if levels are on this part of A levels, as soon as they recognise that as such, by higher education providers, that this could be quite a good step, I think, for people wishing to go to university, but not necessarily wishing to delve deep into academics and you know, spend two years doing learning the intricacies of integers and you know differentiation, integration, all that kind of things, um, which I certainly did enjoy. Mm, yeah, I think, so, so from what I understand is, um, what they're trying to, try to differentiate this from apprenticeship, as you mentioned, um, uh, in regards to there being more theoret- theoretical work rather than just practical um, and students spending most of their time with employers and learning on the job kind of skills. But they're also trying to, like you say, upgrade or make a better equivalent to the BTECs. But you also have the NVQs in the uh, in the UK and in Scotland, you also have the Scottish vocational qualifications as well. 
which are also all uh, vocational courses, as you know. So the T-levels are all, is also a vocational course. And I'm seeing some stats here as well um, in regards to the number of vocational student numbers. Um, and around 2000, um, the year 2000, we had 100,000 people, uh, vocational students um, in England. But by 2020, we've seen that number more than double. We've seen it triple. So now we are at 300,000 people who are regarded as vocational students. So they've chosen courses uh, which are, let's say, like you, like you said, an alternative to what your general or your usual A-levels are. Also, I was going to say that um, not just the number of students, and actually 2020, according to Ofcall, there were 12,000 vocational qualifications at all levels offered by more than 150 awarding bodies. Mm. So this is what the Department of Education refers to when it says it wants to streamline things. Is that you can do an MBQ level three in, in a lot of different things, but not from a lot of different providers. And really they want to kind of streamline that down. And it's very hard for universities and other higher education providers and employers even to kind of work out if it's an accredited course or not, how rigorous it, that course was. And essentially to compare people on equal footing, that's what the kind of the the reasoning behind it is, and I completely agree with it. Mm. Yeah, I, I I can see that as well. And like like you mentioned, that what they're trying to do with the T level qualifications is to make it clear that uh, they do not want people to feel below or lesser than those that do the A levels. Um, and for that reason, they've mentioned that each T level qualification is equivalent to three A levels as such. With uh, the only the benefit being that you get more practical experience as well as you go along, but the only question I've got is, um, will this impact um, people's abilities um, of being selected and going to university as well? Obviously, when you say that it's equivalent to three A levels, something like that, you then are able to get UCAS points as well. For example, with the if you get a distinction in your T level, this is equivalent to three A grades at A level, which is a very good grade, of course. Um, and from that, you get 144 UCAS points, um, which are needed when you're doing your university applications. But do universities themselves see this as such? And will this equivalence be kept? Um, or will there be some sort of discrimination when it comes to selecting someone who's actually done the A levels or someone who selected the route of doing their T levels and wants to do the same course at university? I think that's a very interesting, uh, interesting point. And that equivalence, you know, theoretically it's there, mm. as you can see, they said. Um, but practically, what does that mean? Um, I think because T-level also will apply to certain courses more than others. For example, in medicine, law, and uh, medicine and law, for example, I don't kind of see the scope for T-levels there because, you know, you have a sort of set kind of A-levels that you should do. In medicine dentistry, for sure. Um, so, you know, there might not be much scope there. But I do agree that, especially that, that statement where one T-level distinction is equivalent to three A's, for example. Now, I've recently read about it and seen actually in person as well, some sort of grade inflation, you can say. Um, the, I know the COVID pandemic, yeah, you know, I can't talk because our grades were decided not by exams, by our teachers. But recently, for example, um, when it comes to medicine, again, I'm referring to medicine because you know, that's the field that, that I, I know I'm, I'm from, um, is that you have to do an exam, for example, to get into to get into medical school as well as your A-levels and so on and so forth. It's start of year 13 called um, the UCAT exam and the BMAT exam. Mm. And so the UCAT exam, actually, the entry requirements have gone up massively. And there's cut-off points that, and the minimum entry requirements to get into university have gone up as well. And when I got into university, it was around 700, just over 700 average. 
Um, and that was kind of considered a good score because the average score at that year was 630, to give you an example, right? Mm. This year, I've heard from friends or, you know, kind of uh, tutees that are applying. Even with a score of 720, 740, they're kind of not sure about whether to apply to certain universities in London or not because they're not sure if they'll get in with a low score, apparently. And it's, it's, it's crazy to think that a score of 740 is low when 740 would probably be the top 1 to top 1.5%, you know, maybe three or four years ago. And really, one could argue that either everyone's getting really clever or the exams are getting a bit easier or there's just some people applying to these courses now that there's some sort of, there's some reason behind this kind of grade inflation and academic inflation, you can call it, that's going on. And my only concern is that the T-levels kind of either will contribute to that or they might, for example, be not aimed at the correct level. And so kind of assessing the level at which the education system is at at the moment is very, very kind of essential, I think, mm. um, to T-levels and essential to their success is where they're pitched at the right level or not and in which industry they're pitched at as well. Yeah, you're right. I think the the, the discrepancies or the, um, like <clears> you said, the upscaling or the inflation in the grades can be a worry as well. Um, for simply in 2023 alone, the overall pass rate for the uh, over 3,000 students that took the T-level was 90.5%, um, which shows that a lot, lot large majority um, passed the T-levels and uh, for that reason were in a good position to get into the um, universities or higher education or whatever they want to do after that. Um, but I think that is one of the purposes that they are trying to show, use the T-levels for. So people who might, My not, thing is- might not seem that they are built for the A-levels or for a rigorous academic um, education can still have an experience because um, we've, we've discussed in the past on the show as well whether um, showing uh, good grades in your A-levels and high intellect in those cases necessarily represents a ability to um, fit into university and be successful there um, and what is the link between A-levels and university degrees but also in later on in a, when you want to get into the employment sector as well and the impact of that. My only thing is that with T-levels and the focus on vocational education the A-levels although they are academic and for example I have just said that for example my math A-level wasn't very useful for me. actually it was quite useful because the data processing skills and the data analysis skills are kind of crucial and these skills that might not be directly relevant, for example, now that I think about it, for example, they're actually essential to everyday education. Even, for example, biology, chemistry, even psychology, and these kind of subjects, in order to understand a lot of the news that we hear, in order to kind of process and kind of evaluate a lot of the things we hear on the news in terms of health, in terms of statistics, in terms of politics, economics even, right? You know, we really need some sort of base level understanding. I was talking to my brother the other day in the car, actually, and we were talking about um, an article he'd written recently, for example. And we were talking about the importance of economics, of understanding basic economics. And so it's very, because a lot of concepts in economics, for example, they might seem kind of, without kind of a base level knowledge of economics, they seem kind of adverse. And so even things like, for example, increasing the wages of public sector, for example, um, is that would actually be a very good way of increasing talent, for example. However, the way in which you pitch that, for example, might not be kind of appropriate in the given crisis. But from purely economic theory kind of point of view, it's a very obvious solution to, for example, the lack of talent in the politics, political sector. It's to increase wages, for example. But to understand that kind of requires a slight basic level of uh, you know, economics. And so my brother was arguing that everyone should be kind of mandated to be taught economics at a GCC level or A level um, because it's, you know, it's so, so important understanding how the world works. 
And so my only concern with T-Levels is that we kind of we might lose that academic side of things and we might see people not being able to critically evaluate, you know, send us the, the news as well. Mm. I think one, one thing they are trying to do is be... Um being careful uh, with uh, not launching um, this as being a replacement or uh, an active course because as we know that uh, they've slowly been gradually getting into it so it's been two years now since the T levels have been la- launched but uh, it was it wasn't um, as publicly advertised as, as as you'd expect because like I mentioned I had, had not heard much about it but now I'm hearing that uh, schools and colleges near my area um, and uh, students that I am aware of have started taking the T-levels themselves as well which is when I was intrigued and interested in uh, researching and finding out what this actually is um, and what we see is currently at the moment we have um, only certain subjects being taught as part of the T-levels, which include uh, subjects like accountancy, digital business, finance, healthcare and manufacturing. Um, And gradually they are releasing more subjects uh, once they have been approved for delivery um, and they are sure they are good enough and can be delivered to a high standard. And I think this autumn itself they've um, launched two more, which are legal services and the other one being agriculture, land management and production. Um, and next year, they've got in line hairdressing and barbering and beauty therapy, craft and design, media, broadcast and production, which, I, like you mentioned, they cover a lot of different um, backgrounds and uh, um, employment sectors as well. Um, and catering being another one which they are currently in the process of um, preparing and launching by 2025 as well. So it seems that... Um, Due to the well, success, I'd say, or due to the increased interest being shown in these, um, the education secretary, Gillian Keegan, is interested in launching more of these courses um, and getting them um, more students involved with these as well. I'm actually reading a bit more about t now. And actually, I mean, uh, English, math and digital vision are also built into classroom elements of the that's quite useful because, again, students are building some foundation of transfer which I'm quite happy so you know what? And I think the T-levels are actually there. They do expand it. Um, I think the money can, and again, another concern is that um, the health uh, services, uh, the science T-level, for example, that only kind of gives you access and specialism in kind of slightly lower tiered or lower level services, for example, uh, pharmacy assistance services or assisting with healthcare and so on and so forth. And so um, there is slight concern that even though they're equivalent to three A-levels, and with distinction, they might not be able to give you access to higher education, um, higher kind of healthcare uh, services, such as pharmacy uh, and kind of medicine and so on and so forth. So that's something I think people need to consider when applying for T-levels is that do they go for T-levels and need to make sure that they choose the, the right T-levels mm. for their specific career as well. I think that's a, that's a crucial point to make. Um, but again, I think it's a great alternative to A-levels really. Yeah, I think I think this things into the other discussion that we had. We've had we actually recently had this discussion on the show where we spoke about uh, university, the benefit of it, and uh, um, how much it limits you as well in certain circumstances. So the only thing that I would uh, think about again with the T levels is if you do specific, pick a specific course, um, such as say catering. Um, the only worry for me is that it would potentially limit a lot of students who are having to make decisions at the age of 16. Whereas when it comes to A-level and you're picking subjects like chemistry, biology and maths, like you mentioned earlier, um, you still have a lot of scope in regards to before your university applications of choosing what you specifically want to do and even what you can study at university and do afterwards as well. 
So that's the only thing um, that I'm worried about. And uh, I think that leads us into the next discussion that we want to have in regards to this as well, which is, I believe, Malik, um, you are the currently serving as the president of AMSA UK, which is the Ahmadiyya Muslim Student Association. Um, so you are involved a lot with a lot of these um, A-level students going into university and also students within university as well across the UK. So I believe the UK's applications are have gone through or are currently in the process of being um, done, aren't they? Yes, so um, I'm very fortunate, lucky and humble to serve um, as a president of the Student Association. And actually we run a, me- a, lot, uh, a number of mentoring services, as you mentioned, one of which actually is launching today. So the Apex Make Me a Lawyer uh, program, so anyone who's listening in part of AMSA, for example, or is an Ahmadi student that wants to go into law, uh, please do reach out. There is a um, circulating registration form. Um, it's launching today for anyone wishing to go into law. And the reason why it's launched today and the Make Me Medic one was launched a month ago is that medicine has a slightly early deadline. I believe it's the uh, towards the end of October or the, the middle of, of October that the deadline for the UCAS deadline for applying for medicine, dentistry, and Oxbridge courses actually is. But the normal UCAS deadline, again, I, I do not know the exact date for this year, but it's usually the beginning of uh, January. Um, <clears throat> and so that's why um, mm. the UCAS deadline has not, has not kind of uh, ended yet. It has ended for certain courses, but not for others. Um, but which is interesting actually when you think about it, because you, you'd have thought that for the more kind of intense courses, you need more time to prepare your application and do exams and so on and so forth. But actually, it's the opposite way around. Uh, apparently, they need more time to process um, the students, um, which is an interesting way. But um, the UCAS process itself is, is quite, you know, it's quite vague and can be difficult at times. But, I mean, Rohan, you, you went to university, I believe in Liverpool. How do you find your, your experience with applying, you know, a number of years ago now, I, I presume? Um, the process, up to be fair, I'm not exactly sure whether the process is the same as it was back then. It's been, uh, I applied back in, uh, well, I went to university back in 2014, so it's been a while now. Um, uh, sorry, 2016. I was like, wait, ten years. That's a, that's a long time ago. 2016 is when I went to university. Um, and the process back then, I remember, it was pretty straightforward if you think about it. And like you mentioned, there was a difference in regards to on what subjects you were trying to apply to. So, for example, medicine, the process is quite different to what a lot of other subjects are. Um, I believe uh, with the law degree as well, um, you have to go through a different process with interviews and that kind of stuff, which is not necessarily the case for a lot of other courses, um, and particularly in engineering as well. There's a lot of um, leeway and uh, options to get through other routes as well. There's foundation years and courses, um, a lot of more spaces when it comes to clearing. Clearing is another thing, I think, um, that we've, we've often spoken about in the past, um, the benefit of this, etc. But uh, one thing that... Uh, hasn't got any better or even worse i should say is uh, the tuition fees and student loans i think um over time i'm not exactly sure what the rate is right now um but when i went we were paying exactly nine thousand a year when it came to our um, fees itself to the university yeah nine thousand two hundred fifty pounds i can tell you that number because it haunts me in my dreams um, so, so that actually <laughs> changed yeah so that I think year or two literally after I went. So I think it's been consistent then for the last, um, at least the last three, four years then. But yeah, that's a, if you, if you put that into perspective, I think we'll, we'll, we'll talk a bit about on that as well. Um, the cost of going to university. I think yeah, the cost of going to university is, is a very important thing to talk about. Mm. I always find it surprising how I believe in Scotland, if you're educated from primary school or something like that, then you have access to free university. And even, you know, even just before your time, I think it was 2014, 15, 
where they had the grant system, where the fees mm. were like, you know, they were three, four thousand pounds a year, I think, maybe ten, fifteen years ago, and you're also given, you know, a non payable back grant of three thousand pounds or so yeah. to help you with costs when you go to university, and so you know to go, I mean, I think it's six thousand pounds even. So to go from that to having to take, you know, massive amounts of loans to go to university, I think is is very shocking. But you know, we're talking domestically. I thought that was bad when I went to university. Some of my, my international friends, for example, they're paying absolutely ludicrous amounts uh, mm. for their fees. I remember, you know, it was £39,000 for one year uh, of studying Medic Kings uh, for, my, my, for my international friends. And because of COVID and the inflation and you know, the exchange rate and so forth, the year after it was £42,000. So I was thinking, you know, these guys are here. It's a five-year course, first of all. You're paying £40,000 a year. You know, and yeah, very that's, much, that's absolutely ridiculous. No, Forty, forty thousand pounds a year is so much, right? Yeah, and there's no loans. For example, they don't get any loans. Their parents have to pay that money. Mm. In, I mean, I found out about it because my my friend was like, after, after you know, I I'm busy this evening. I have to sort out some finance stuff. So me being nosy, I was like, you know, you know, what's happening here? What kind of finances are you doing? What kind of business transactions is happening? And he was saying that no, my dad has transferred me X amount of money so I can pay off this semester fees. And I was thinking it's ridiculous that you've got to pay upfront. I think it was in cash. Uh, or by bank transfer, sorry. You've got to pay up front for each semester of fees, which is obviously 40000 divided by three. Um, you know, ridiculous amounts of money. So in that sense, I suppose we are kind of a little bit luckier. But even then, I worked out the other day, I will you know, I'll probably graduate with over, I think, £100,000 in debt, or just mm. under, I think, um, including masters and so on and so forth. So that, you know, it really is that like, cost of education, and I'm sure you can tell me more about this, because you've actually been through the system, you're paying it back now. But how does impact you even after you finish your education so um at the time that you're trying to go to university and you're being told about you need these loans you need to um pay this money back and also trying to basically survive at university as well because uh you've lived out um, and i've lived out as well and we know there's a lot of costs involved when it came comes to living out especially when it comes to accommodation and uh almost all the average maintenance loan that received by university students is spent on accommodation, etc. So at that time, you are in this um, understanding that, yes, I have to take out a loan to be able to get through university, and that's what you do. And once the, you're always told about this fact that, oh, it's uh, don't worry about it, you have to deal with it after you finish university, hopefully you'll be on a good uh, income, it'll be pretty straightforward to pay back, you only have to pay back a certain amount a month, which is which is quite low, um, obviously you can, you can change that, you can vary the amount you want to pay back each month, but when you come to the stage when you're paying back, um, and you realise, uh, like you mentioned, if it's over 100k, it's not going to be the case that you can pay back in a couple of years. Definitely not. If you're paying at the lowest amount back, um, you also have to keep in mind that the loan works on interest, meaning that uh, every year the amount that you have to pay back increases. So if you're paying at the lowest amount, you might actually notice the fact that um, over three to four years, if you're also on a low salary, you're, you've hardly paid back any any of your loan. And in some cases, it also turns out that people are going in a negative, that their loan has increased over a couple of years itself because they haven't been paying back regularly. Um, so, so the way it's been designed, it's that you'd be spending, if you're regularly working, around 20 to 25 years of your back just paying back the loan. Or in some cases, a lot of people are never able to pay back the loan and it's just um, forgiven when it comes to a certain time period. Um so it's it's a it's a recurring or kind of let's say a um, permanent tax as you, as you you can call it that. I'm reading now as well actually the the rent that you mentioned. So the average annual rent for England is seven thousand five hundred pounds. 
And the average weight of this one is also around 7,500 pounds. So that leaves you know, I think there's a gap of 24 pounds a year for the essentials. So really you can see that it's almost necessary. It's almost, I mean, you have to either have financial support from parents or you have to have a work apart. I'm going into my university course and the advice is very clear from the prior that I strongly encourage not to work during university mm. due to the necessity of the course. And but if you think about it, then you you have no choice, but you have to work if you're getting paid £24 to cover living in London, for example, in which genuinely you sum the door in £24, um, even buying anything of significance, TF just absolutely changes your fortune. So then so then you think, like, how is it possible? And that brings us on to our, our next topic, which is that disadvantaged university students and how, you know, how well are they doing and how are they applying to university? And I actually found that this year there's been quite a lot more uh, disadvantaged students of university. It's up by 6% apparently um, compared to last year for those applying for the medicine, vet, dentistry and Oxbridge courses. Um, but my thinking is that now those people are applying to university, um, like you said, student loan, the, for example, the student rent prices have gone up 14% in the last two years. Mm. And the student loan has gone up by 5%, I think, in the last last two years. How are they going to cope? And will we be seeing here kind of, you know, um, much more of a, a need to increase the maintenance loan, uh, maybe bring back some sort of maintenance grant, you know, uh, for people that, you know, maybe not can't, can't afford to pay back those loans, for example. There needs to be some kind of changing system, because like I just explained to you, and like you said as well, the, the maintenance that you get, for example, covers your rent, and that's just about it. The rest of it kind of is up to you to kind of uh, to kind of fund. And that also is an interesting point because I remember a few years ago there was a massive push for uh, BAME mentoring and people from disadvantaged students to get into university. And actually, AMSA actually do provide BAME mentoring and specific mentoring for people from you know disadvantaged backgrounds and helping them get into university. For example, there are around 14 or 15 people we are helping the medicine this year in the round for more. Um, now. It actually makes me think that people are getting to university, but have we thought about how are they being supported at university? Like I said, a few years ago, there was a massive outcry of the fact that a lot of medical and dental students, for example, came from rich, wealthy backgrounds, mostly Caucasian, and there was not a lot of diversity within um, the medical diaspora, the medical de- demographic, uh, and also a lot of diversity, therefore, at the foundation doctor level, registration doctor level. And that was into kind of racism or kind of discrimination, kind of, you know, those kind of issues at that fundamental level in the workplace. Um, but now it's a good thing, of course, that this one students are coming in, but those barriers to their entry, we really need to think about, you know, how to reduce those those financial barriers now that we've overcome the educational ones, you can argue. Um, and so those financial support systems, I think, really need to be looked at. And again, it seems like every so months a new issue you know, comes up, and again, the solution is financial support, financial systems. In a world where, again, you have the cost of living crisis and financial systems, but even the taxpayers is, is kind of is, is weakening. Um, but really, because kind of, uh, you know, these courses and these students are our future, I really think the government needs to have a look at, a strong look at these, uh, this sector and kind of ensure that we're not stopping people that are bright, educated, we're not stopping them from going to university or having a good university experience just because, you know, of their background. I know people who go into some good universities, but because they cannot afford to even live away from home, they're being forced to choose, for example, universities that are close to home that might not give them the best job prospects, that might not give them the best university you know, environment experience, the best academic learning environment, um, simply due to the fact that they cannot afford to, to move out of the house, which you know, you know, we were lucky enough to do so. Mm, yeah, I, th- I think there's a lot of questions there in regards to, um, as you mentioned, doing a job at university, um, 
I didn't personally do one. Like you mentioned, it, it can be quite quite challenging to do so. Um, but uh, then if you're not receiving the highest um, maintenance loan, which is only eligible for those people who whose household earnings are under £25,000, which is not obviously not a lot of people come into that bracket, um, then, then it's very difficult because, like you mentioned, then parents or family members or other um, ways to get loans need to be utilised, um, which is a lot of, which is an issue for a vast amount of students. And again, to put into perspective that you're, you're basically paying let's say with the accommodation as well I've noticed is that it's been going up every single year as well keeping in mind inflation again um, and those things around it so let's say I can't remember exactly how much but even with the good good th- good uh, price place you'd have to pay at least £700 a month when I was living in Sheffield which is obviously not known to be that expensive when it comes to um, housing etc and much worse in London if you're going to if you go into that but uh, since there is a fl- inflation when it comes to accommodation uh, cost of living crisis um, food drink water everything associated um, with uh, anything that university students consume or require then that should also be represented in my opinion in an increase um, in the maintenance loan as well, which I believe has not taken place uh, since the inflation and all these things have come into effect. Obviously, there's then obviously drawbacks in regards to people having to pay a greater amount of loans, but I think it's more important that the loans cover the least, the bare minimum. And uh, many university students, which was also the case in my time, shouldn't have to survive on just um, one meal a day, essentially. I think I think that's, that's absolutely, it's horrible, it's wrong. Um, and I remember personally seeing friends um, and people having to go through this themselves. No, definitely. I think, you know, to have, you know, a healthy mind, a strong mind, you need to have a healthy body as well. And actually, that was one of these topics that we didn't cover today, but mm. we're talking about the connection between mind and, and body. And this is very, very strong. If you're on one meal a day, how can you expect to, you know, go through academically intense, um, you know, education? And how can you... Expect to remember what you you've you've learned during the day. How do you expect to get you know you know get about during the day? I mean, you know, if you're having one meal a day for you know a few days on end, in the end of it, you're going to be you know your energy reserves are going to be absolutely depleted. You're going to see issues, health issues actually. And I, I wonder actually, you know, this is kind of a, an area of research which might be interesting, and perhaps someone's done the research already. But the link between mental health and physical health is so strong that the number of cases that I think we talked about mental health among students, especially. Um, you know, being quite poor over the last few years due to COVID and so on and so forth. But perhaps that could be a link as well, that if you, for example, if you're having financial difficulties, you're eating one meal a day, um, you're under academic stress as well, those kind of environments are kind of not great environments for mental health. And no wonder, for example, we're seeing, you know, massive, such massive mental health cases um, arising in education. The university is meant to be, you know, an area for you to excel academically and kind of mentally mature is actually becoming an area where kind of, you know, you're being affected by these kind of issues. So I really think this is an area where the government needs to focus on. And, you know, the government's job is to make policies. And we can sit here and say the government should do this and, and do that. But obviously we're not the policymakers. But, you know, even things like the maintenance loan, for example, the upper limit, the argument sometimes used that actually the more loan you give out, the less likely you are to receive the, you know, the loan back. Mm. But for example, you might, the government might want to look at, for example, increasing the maintenance loans for certain sectors, certain sectors that might lead to, or certain courses that might lead to higher-paying jobs and degrees and, so, and therefore, you know, a higher chance of the loan being paid back, and so on and so forth. I remember Rishi Sunak a few months ago, uh, he had taken a step where he was talking about uh, getting rid of, you know, the 
the, the, the Mickey Mouse degree, I think, use the phrase. Um, so Mickey Mouse degrees, for example, these courses that kind of think they were in, not beautician or kind of fine art. So I, I can't remember exactly which courses they were. But he was saying these courses don't really have great job prospects or they're kind of courses to be taken almost for the fun of it um, by kind of uh, not so great education providers. And so getting rid of those degrees would mean saving you know, a lot of money that isn't, uh, that's kind of wasted due to the loans being given and not uh, being paid back. And, and so some sort of policy that is based on future prospects might suit the government better and also suit the students better as well. But that's certainly, I think, an aspect um, where the government, you know, perhaps needs to take a closer look at. So, um, Rishi Sunak, if he's listening by any chance, please do take notes. <laughs> yeah, please take notes. I think. Um, but discuss- discussions have been taking place uh, for a long, long time. And remember the debates around um, the loans prior to COVID uh, about... Uh, reduction in uh, tuition fees as well and uh, during COVID as well I remember when people were saying that due to the lack of um, actually exposure that they had to university or their course or their lecturers their supervisors a lot of people not even going to university for a whole year is having some sort of reduction in their tuition loans as well um, which tuition fees sorry which obviously did not take place as, as we know as far as we know so far but as you said, Takrim, one good thing that we have been seeing is that um, more people from underrepresented or disadvantaged backgrounds have been getting into um, university. And uh, it's mentioned that the number of October applicants from the most underrepresented areas is up by 7% on last year. So more people from underrepresented areas are applying. And UCAS says this is encouraging. Um, the advantage gap still needs to shift, though according to Sutton Trust Charity, which is what you mentioned earlier as well, that when you see, when you look at a lot of the courses at university, it's not a representative of the overall population um, and demographics for a lot of area. And only certain people who are able to afford or who have the capability of having an education background where it makes them easy, it makes it easier for them to go to university and adapt to university, then um, you see more of those kind of people at university. And like, like, like we discussed earlier, this is where a lot of the people from underrepresented backgrounds end up going to words uh, BTECs and other vocational courses um, and then going straight into employment after that, which obviously for a lot of people works out quite well for them. Um, and that, like I said, that's a advantage in our education system that those who are not fond of university or having a higher education in that sense can still have a lot of opportunities um, fulfilling their dreams and being able to do what they like and enjoy. But I think yes. we just want to wrap it up there with uh, this whole discussion um, before we go off onto our news break. So we've been talking about um, the T-levels that have come in, a new vocational course which has started just uh, under two years ago, um, how this compares to apprenticeships and BTECs and A-levels um, and what this potentially means for more students who do not want to do the A-levels um, and uh, impact it will have on higher education students. Um, and overall, I think there's there's a lot of questions still to be answered in regards to that, um, about the success of that. Like I said, they're launching new courses. so uh, And the numbers are definitely increasing of the students that are taking part in this. So this could be a step forward. But let's see how that changes when the new um, A-levels as such um, come in. I believe in the next couple of years that will be the case as well. After that, we also spoke about... Um, 
university and going to university is it worth it are you streamlining yourself and uh, denying the ability to be able to have a much broader opportunities for the future um, or are you going to a institution which just gives you an education and knowledge to be become specialists in uh, certain fields and and also cream you study medicine yourself which obviously is a highly intensive uh, degree I did chemical engineering which is also very very streamlined and the what you study and what you learn um, is not really broad but uh, like we mentioned that uh, my opportunities post university might be quite limited um and uh, the issue around higher education we discussed is regards to tuition loans and fees associated with that um and also in regards to the underrepresentation of certain demographics and backgrounds in university as well but now we're going to go to a news break and we'll be back shortly after you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Life of Muhammad, peace be upon him. High moral qualities. Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was always very patient in adversity. He was never discouraged by adverse circumstances, nor did he permit any personal desire to get a hold over him. It has been related that his father had died before his birth, and his mother died while he was still a little child. Up to the age of eight, he was in the guardianship of his grandfather, and after the latter's death, he was taken care of by his uncle. Abu Talib, both on account of natural affection and also because he had been specially admonished in that behalf by his father, Abu Talib always watched over his nephew with care and indulgence, but his wife was not affected by these considerations to the same degree. It often happened that she would distribute something among her own children, leaving out their little cousin. If Abu Talib chanced to come into the house on such an occasion, he would find his little nephew sitting apart, a perfect picture of dignity and without a trace of sulkiness or grievance on his face. The uncle, yielding to the claims of affection and recognizing his responsibility, would run to the nephew, clasp him to his bosom and cry out, Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Do pay attention to this child of mine also. Such incidents were not uncommon, and those who were witnesses to them were unanimous in their testimony that the young Muhammad, peace be upon him, never gave any indication that he was in any way affected by them, or that he was in any sense jealous of his cousins. Later in life, when he was in a position to do so, he took upon himself the care and upbringing of two of his uncle's sons, Ali, peace be upon him, and Jafir, peace be upon him, and discharged this responsibility in the most excellent manner. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, throughout his life had to encounter a succession of bitter experiences. He was born an orphan. His mother died while he was still a small child, and he lost his grandfather at the age of eight years. After marriage, he had to bear the loss of several children, one after the other, and then his beloved and devoted wife, Khadija, died. Some of the wives he married after Khadija's death died during his lifetime, and towards the close of his life, he had to bear the loss of his son, Ibrahim. He bore all these losses and calamities cheerfully, and none of them affected in the least degree either his high resolve or the urbanity of his disposition. His private sorrows never found vent in public, and he always met everybody with a benign countenance and treated all alike with uniform benevolence. On one occasion, he observed a woman who had lost a child, occupied in loud mourning, over her child's grave. He admonished her to be patient and to accept God's will as supreme. The woman did not know that she was being addressed by the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and replied, if you had ever suffered the loss of a child as I have, 
you would have realized how difficult it is to be patient under such an affliction. The Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, observed, I have suffered the loss not of one but of seven children, and passed on, except when he referred to his own losses or misfortunes in this indirect manner, he never cared to dwell upon them, nor did he permit them in any manner to interfere with his unceasing service to mankind and his cheerful sharing of their burdens. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Writings of the Promised Messiah, Salam. When you stand up in prayer, you should know it for certain that your God has the power to do all that He wills. Then your prayer will be accepted and you will behold the wonders of God's power that we have beheld. Our testimony is based on seeing and is not a mere tale. How should the supplication of a person be accepted? And how should he have the courage to pray at the time of great difficulties, when according to him, he is opposed by the law of nature? Unless he believes that God has power over everything. You should not be like that. Your God is one who has suspended numberless stars without any support and who has created heaven and earth from nothing. And would you think so ill of him as to imagine that your objective is beyond his power? Such thinking will frustrate you. Our God possesses numberless wonders, but only those observe them who become wholly his with certainty and fidelity. He does not disclose his powers to those who do not believe in his powers and are not faithful to him. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu and welcome back to Saturday Morning Live on Voice of Islam radio station broadcasting from our office, our studio in Morden in London. Um, you are joined by myself, Ruhan Ullah Chima and uh, we also, Malik has dropped off now but we will be joined by um, another one of my co-presenters, Zishan Kahloon. Um, the other presenters, as you know, Umar, Hamad and Oshay, who usually join me, um, seems that it's holiday season and a lot of people are currently out of country, probably trying to get away from, like I mentioned, the grey and gloomy weather um, and the rain and the storms that will be taking place. So a lot have been happening this week um, and uh, trying to escape to warmer countries and backgrounds as well. So in the first hour of the show, uh, just before this, before, especially for those who are just joining, just to give a recap, uh, we went through some of the news stories that have been taking place, um, discussed around the conflict that is unfortunately currently taking place um, in uh, Palestine and in Israel and Gaza. And uh, then we went on talking about uh, reformation in the education system, um, the new T-levels that have been introduced over the last couple of years, uh, how those have been implemented, how many students have been taking part, and also the future prospects in regards to that as well. We also spoke about the need uh, for A-levels, uh, whether they're needed or not, uh, actually. 
and uh, higher education, university, um, which is a topic I think we bring up often as well because most of us are students who have gone to university um, and we try to analyse in regards to the benefits and the drawbacks of going in, mainly around the financial burden um, that is applied due to university and uh, also the benefits of future prospects that come up as well. So that's what we've done so far. Um, and one thing, so going forward, we want to speak about... Um, gun laws and specifically um, mass shootings that have been taking place looking at the main mass shooting that happened recently in the US and a comparison of uh, gun laws when it comes to the US and the UK as well but before we go there <clears throat> and I know we usually try to do this towards the end of the show or at some point is to give you a bit of the sports roundup uh, and go through the different things that are going on and it also gives me an opportunity to check on the cricket scores currently as well Uh, so as we know the world cup is currently taking place the 2023 men's cricket world cup and currently england are playing so england are currently playing australia which is live Um, uh, australia are batting first england are bowling and uh, england are doing well to restrict Australia so far. So Australia at the moment are 189 for five wickets at uh, 35 overs. So they have 15 overs remaining. And they literally had just lost the wicket as well. So Stoinis has just come in and Green is batting with him right now. Um, in terms of bowling, Vokes is bowling well. He has taken two wickets, an uh, economy of five runs per over. And Rashid as well has taken two wickets, an uh, economy of 3.62 and over, which is really, really good. On the other side of the table, and this is a conflict for a lot of people from uh, who have come from a Asian background, uh, a lot of the, from Pakistani background specifically, who live now in the UK, is whether to support England or Pakistan. And this becomes more difficult when you see that both games are actually taking place at exactly the same time. So currently, New Zealand and Pakistan are playing at the moment as well. New Zealand um, batted first and they put up a humongous score or 401 runs for six outs in 50 overs, which uh, some people would say is uh, almost impossible to chase down, especially um, there's not many incidents where such a large score has been chased down, and especially in a World Cup as well. I believe 401, chasing down 401, would definitely be the largest run chase um, uh, World Cup incidents. So we have... Currently, Pakistan are batting now, so after the 401. And I have to say, surprisingly, so I do usually watch the World Cup, but uh, and I do support Pakistan, I'd say, um, because with Pakistan, it's a bit of a bittersweet feeling. Um, more bitter, I'd say, this year than sweet. But uh, we have a lot of ups and downs, which is what makes the game, as a fan, very, very exciting. Um, you feel a, a very vast mix of emotions. So specifically... We have uh, now Pakistan batting. Shafiq was out pretty early in the game with only four runs. But, 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 now Fakhar Zaman, who performed very well in the last game, and Babar Azam at the crease. So Fakhar Zaman has literally just hit his century. So he scored 101 runs of 64 balls. And Babar Azam has also been supporting as a captain on 44 runs of 47. So gradually going around along. So Babar Azam is almost at a strike rate of 193 at the moment. But Fakhar Zaman's at a strike rate of 158, um, which is exactly what you need with chasing down such a big score. In total, Pakistan are 150 for one out at almost 20 overs. But they still need 252 runs 
from 30 overs with nine wickets remaining for the rest um, of the game, which is, like I mentioned, a very, very big challenge. But the way things are going right now, I'm a bit optimistic, but I've learned not to get my hopes high. <laughs> with the thing, the, the way this World Cup has been going, with the way Pakistan have been playing, I think they have to win this in order to keep their hopes up of uh, trying to reach the semi-final. Um, and as mentioned, England and Australia haven't been performing their best either at this World Cup. With uh, South Africa, uh, India, New Zealand playing much better, but New Zealand have lost their last three games, so that that, that might be impactful for them. Um, and apart from that, uh, we have uh, various other sports uh, background, um, sporting events taking place at the moment. So you have the Sao Paulo Grand Prix for those who are interested in Formula One, uh, where Max Verstappen beats Charlie Charles Leclerc to pole position for Sunday's race. So he came first in the qualifying and will be taking the pole. Uh, Mercedes Lewis Hamilton was fifth, and George Russell will start eighth. Uh, in football specifically, we are seeing a lot of discussions around the managerial position at Manchester United, with Ten Hag being Eric Ten Hag being criticised in regards to the recent performance that Manchester United have been going through. Um, and a lot of people actually saying that when Jose Mourinho went through um, a similar situation, where actually his record was slightly better than Ten Hag, he was sacked as the manager of Manchester United. Um, a lot of people are saying, why is there a um, difference when it comes to Eric Ten Hag? But I believe a lot of fans are trying to support him and the board at Manchester United are trying to support him as well, um, despite their recent poor form. But uh, I can't really speak being a Chelsea supporter. It's been a very, very tough season for us. Um, so, fair. so Chelsea are currently 11th in the league with not a lot of progress being seen um, and uh, it's, it's quite worrying seeing that especially seeing the amount of money that we spent over the last year or so um, and I was literally recently doing a comparison looking at our team this season to two, three seasons ago and the changes where hardly any of the players are still in the club um, the, the, it was need to make such a drastic change. Um, so obviously it does take a bit of time to build back up when you are, have a big um, change in your squad. But uh, hoping to see better results and um, hopefully actually try to get some Champions League football next year, which uh, is quite sad, depressing without. <laughs> so I think we've joined now um, by my co-host, my co-presenter, uh, Zishan Kahloon. So Zishan, I was just going through the sports round, your favourite part of the show. Yeah, Rohan, I don't think you're going to get Champions League next year. Uh, by the looks of it, 11th, 11th in the league, yeah, it's looking a bit different, you know. Uh, yeah, Brent, you, Brentford are more likely to get it this rate. <laughs> Even if you stay in the Premier League, that would be a uh, miracle. Oh, God. Honest. Oh, God. No, but Arsenal, Arsenal have been performing well. Um, they are. They and are, yeah. uh, Tottenham, surprisingly, as well. Yeah. People are saying but, it's the... The, the... the thing is, Rohan, that um, ever since me and Umar, our co-host, who's not here today, mm. uh, discussed uh, where Arsenal and Chelsea would finish uh, last season. Ever since then, I think... Uh, I don't know if it's luck or if it's bad luck, whichever way you want to see it, but mm. Arsenal's on top. And it feels good. Yeah, I think, I think Arsenal fans have, are, are, do know not to get uh, their hopes too high. I will get too confident, especially towards the end of the season. A lot of things can happen. I think Man City, um, 
uh, slipping on those two games where they where they lost uh, can, that can make all the difference when it comes to the league yeah. uh, when it's so competitive. But Tottenham, I think a lot of people are saying is the Harry Kane curse. Huh? So ever since he's left, uh, Bayern be locked out of the cup by a team in the third division, and uh, <laughs> Tottenham are top of the table. <laughs> so let's see. Well, let's see. Rohan, I think you know if you look at the. I'm pretty fond of Tottenham, anyways. There's no denial that there's, you know, Arsenal, Arsenal supporters. They they don't get along with Tottenham supporters mm. and vice versa. But uh, I think Tottenham hasn't really played tough matches, have they? Uh, they've only played lower league teams, uh, which is good in a way because because it gives them that to practice the way they want to play uh, and really get ready for the big teams. Mm. Uh, but I think, you know, in the next couple of game weeks, we'll, we'll find out what Tottenham is really made of. We know that Manchester is. So, yeah, 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 no. They, 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 if, if you slip against them, you, know, you, you can't chase the title anymore. Yeah, no. exactly. Like I said, it's it's always the one or two ma- major games that make yeah. all the difference. It's only been ten games uh, as well, and the top of the table is still looking very tight. Um, so, so we'll see what's happening. I, I, and another thing we were talking about, I was just talking about as well. I don't know if you missed it. Um, have you been watching the cricket? I have been watching the cricket. Okay, okay. Uh, so I was just I was I was saying that the reason we're doing the news run right right now is so I get an excuse to actually see the scores that are, of the games that are happening right now as well. <laughs> okay, so, 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 so I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a bit honest. Okay, I, I, I'm not watching cricket by my own will. Mm. Uh, I'm being forced to watch cricket in no. the office. Okay, okay, it's so one of those situations. Everyone else is watching it. Yeah, yeah. So the team is on. We're watching it um, today. I think it's New Zealand versus Pakistan. Yeah. Yep. Um, I don't really think they're gonna win, are they? They have to, they have to chase four hundred and two. Yeah, yeah, which uh, is a um, it's a big big ask. If Pakistan beat uh, New Zealand today, that's the only way uh, Pakistan can actually go through. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the only way to anymore. keep their well. They won't definitely go through, but it's to keep their hopes alive still of being able to make the semi-finals. But even then, if you think about it, four hundred two will be the highest ever run chase at at a World Cup. So didn't they do one of the highest chases a few months ago? Yep, it was against I think it was Sri Lanka. I think, but they had it was around, but it was less than that. It was it wasn't it was hardly three fifty. Yeah, it, it was something around 350, isn't it? 340 yeah. or something like that. Exactly. So, so this is this is a big ask, but uh, they are playing okay at the moment. Um, as in the, the run rate that they're going at is uh quite high, but definitely not at the level that they need to be at right now. It's but it's rain delay now, isn't it? So they yeah. they put it down to 48. Yeah. Uh, instead of 50. Yeah, so been delayed at the moment. So. Rohan, what's happening with England? Uh, England are playing right now as well. So they're playing oh. against Australia. Obviously, both, I mentioned earlier that England and Australia both haven't been performing at this World Cup, really. Um, and there's not much chance for England to do anything now. But they are restricting uh, Australia quite well, to be fair. So Australia are 202 runs for five wickets, at 37 overs. Um, so 
at this rate, if England can keep them below 300, they'll they'll be in a good position, really. For what? Tent. Yeah, just uh, <laughs> for participation. <laughs> I, I, I think it's the curse of winning the World Cup. I, I believe England was the previous World Cup yeah. winner. Yeah. And if, if you look at it in sporters, in cricket, in, 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 in whichever sports you look at, uh, you see that the team that won the World Cup, uh, they always slip up in the next World Cup. Mm. And, and they really underperform. There must be some kind of, of study behind this that, you know, maybe we'll cover another day. Mm, yeah, I think this is the case for uh, football as well. Uh, cricket uh, has been the case as a, as a Germany supporter. I know I know very well uh, what that looks like in a in a footballing sense of the word um, for many years now. So it's it's uh, it's quite upsetting to see. It is. Um, another thing to keep in mind recently, um, we've had a tragic loss of Sir Bobby Charlton, uh, yeah. very famous, um, known as a World Cup winner, the nineteen sixty six World Cup, um, and he scored as well. Um, in that game uh, in the semi-final as well where he scored both goals against Portugal uh, he passed away at the age of 86 uh, um, on 21st October and that of tributes have come through uh, across the sporting world and uh, his actually his semi-final shirt from that world specific World Cup from 1966 is being auctioned right now um, with a price tag of around 50 to 80,000 pounds Um but uh, yeah, I think he's he's uh, he's well um, respected and means a lot to England fans and for footballing fans around the world as well. Um, uh, being obviously the only World Cup win um, and being a club legend as well for um, for certain clubs. So uh, sad sad to hear about that news. Really, Rohan, which certain clubs? Uh, I didn't want to mention because it's not related to mine. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yes, uh, I, I, you know what? Every person, for example, my dad, or you, you know that generation, yeah. uh, um, they've always told me that, look, uh, Bobby Charlton was something phenomenal. Mm. He, he, he was a phenomenal player. Uh, I, I think I think England has seen another player like that. Uh, the, the way I, I've seen some clips of him um, playing, and, and he was just so graceful. Uh, his, his his understanding of the game and his movement was something you know at that day and age. I think it was something out of this world. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. I think one thing this did um, make me reflect on was the. Um, the fl- the the short period or the fleeting period that this lifetime really is, because with all that Sir Bobby Charlton achieved, um, he was he's obviously a very famous person. He reached the pinnacle of football in a sense. Um, but the end, we all must go one day. Um, with Sir Bobby Charlton as well, with all that success, with all that strength, you know, a lot of people start thinking that these people are invincible. But uh, at the end, with the, when he came to an old age, Bobby was uh, currently in a care home, which is also where he passed away, um, where he fell over, unfortunately, um, his head, I believe, and he passed away there. But it shows that um, we all will go to a period where, after our strength, after our peaks of our life, we will go to, we will um, return towards a state state of weakness. 
um, of uh, elderly age, uh, and we all will be at the end as part of the dust in our grave. Um, and that, uh, like like we said, that, that can happen at any moment as well, um, as we're seeing with a lot of cases in conflicts around the world where people who are children who are not even reaching the ages of one years old or are, are some days old um, are losing their lives as well. So it shows the unpredictability in life and also um, preparations needed for a secondary or a further um, life that we will be taking part in. But you know, it, it, it really shows you, Rohan, that uh, it's, it's not we who control uh, when we're going to live, mm. uh, when, when we're going to die and how long we're going to live. Mm. It, it's really up to, uh, up to God Almighty. Uh, it shows you how insignificant we are uh, and, and how vulnerable we are. Definitely. Uh, it, it kind of, you know, it reminds you to be humble, uh, to deal with humility, uh, to be nice with people in this world because because you really don't know how long you're here and how long you get to spend time with Yep, no, I absolutely agree. Um, and in regards to that as well, I think that takes us up to our next topic that we want to discuss um, for the rest of the show, which is in regards to um, gun rights, but mostly the gun violence that we're seeing um, in America. And a a particular thing that I wanted to look at as well is that I've often had discussions with American friends about the um, rights to hold and carry uh, a weapon and uh, comparison that's made to the UK. So they often like to make um, a jive jive or they they make comments around uh, the increased knife crime, uh, which is prevalent in the UK. And uh, they tell us that we are no better. Uh, criticizing gun laws in the U- U.S. when we have laws, uh, when we have crime rates which are also very, very high in the U.K. as well. But I think th- th- I think this is an unfair comparison, um, in my opinion, and that is something I want to talk to. But let's 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 start from the beginning of the topic, which is in regards to specifically the mass shooting that took place, which we want to discuss in Maine in the U.S., uh, where 18 people were killed. Um, due to Robert Card, who was a 40-year-old gentleman, well, I don't say gentleman, 14-year-old man from uh, the US, and uh, he went around on a mass shooting spree. Um, And what actually happened was that he got away on that day as well, and there was a three-day manhunt that took place after this, um, where people were told to stay inside and stay safe. Um, and eventually when they did find him, they found out that he had a uh, self-inflicted gunshot wound, which caused his death. So they're saying that he committed suicide as well before he was caught. <clears throat> but uh, this is not something um, surprising for people, obviously for, for us as well, when we look, look at news from the US, where news of gun violence uh, comes through on a regular basis. And obviously in the UK, we don't hear about all of them. But in the US, it's, it's almost a daily occurrence of uh, not just the individual gun violence, but also mass shootings. It is, Ron. Uh, you know, I was recently in the US, and the way I saw people carrying guns around was shocking for me. We don't see that in the UK. Mm. We don't see that anywhere else in the world, to be honest. If you just imagine you're walking uh, a grocery shop, and there's someone who has an open firearm. Yeah. Uh, in Tesco. So. That's, that's so bizarre <laughs> to me, like, just to even think about. Yeah. 
it's, it's something I've absorbed. And the issue isn't, uh, um, I, I, personally, I don't think she is owning a gun. Uh, the issue is the vetting to get the gun. In the US, any Tom, Dick and Harry can go and buy uh, a gun. Mm. Okay. No matter who it is. Yep. Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter what kind of mental state that person is. It doesn't matter what kind of background he had, uh, you know, because because we don't know if the certain person went through domestic abuse, went uh, you know, violence, uh, uh, bullying, and God knows what uh, in, in, in his childhood. Yeah. And being able to give that person without uh, having his medical background checked it's, I think I think it's very dangerous. Yeah, I think the difficulty here is that even if you try to put in procedures or uh, mitigations of uh, having background checks on people as well, is that how rigorous can you make this? You know, what do you assess in a person for them to be eligible to carry a weapon or gun as well? Um, do you check their uh, mental health history? Um, what kind of questions do you ask them to know? Obviously, it's, it's very difficult to assess these things. And then the second question comes in for the US, the whole discussion about the promotion of um, carrying weapons and laws is the um, the freedom and the right to do so. So when you start restricting a certain area of your population according to certain criteria, then a whole uh, your whole um, idea of freedom and the right to carry, etc. falls apart. Um, it becomes an issue. But we've gotten yeah. to a stage where the, the weapons are so prevalent. So even if someone who is not able to purchase a weapon themselves, it still will be very, very easily and accessible for them to get one. For example, in 2020, um, 44% of Americans lived in a household where there were uh, guns and weapons present there. So it's not an issue where you can either take it from either another household or from your own household. You'd easily find a gun there. So it's not that's not a problem. Like you mentioned, Walmart. I've seen documentaries myself where the the walls in Walmart are just filled with weapons that you can go and buy off the counter. You know, this is it's, it's like a video game <laughs> essentially for us who who live here. Um, yeah. It's it's a it's a scary or worrying to see um, that. I I think Rohan, you know to understand the whole aspect of freedom uh, to carry a weapon. Mm. We really have to go back in time. Uh, imagine you're in the early 1800s. I, I, I believe that's that's when the law came in, didn't it? That you can carry your, the constitution and goodness wells. I, I, I don't know the exact uh, year. Uh, but at that time, um, the guns weren't as advanced as they are now. Mm. Uh, you you had uh, a pistol, for example, a shotgun, where you had to reload it every shot or every second shot. Now, at that time, you know, obviously, even at, even at, even in that uh, scenario, a gun is very dangerous. Uh, but compare that to now, where you have automated uh, rifles where you can shoot you know, tens yeah. of, of, of rounds in, in one go. Yep. Um, so I think it really needs to be revised. And, and you know, that is the beauty kind of uh, of Islam. It's, it, you would be thinking of, of you know, how, how am I going to link this with, with Islam? The viewers would be thinking about that as well. Uh, the point is, 
that every law, every man-made law uh, becomes outdated. Yep. Uh, whereas the Quran, the teachings of Islam, will never be outdated. It really truly shows you uh, that there's God Almighty and that this is the perfect law. Look at the Quranic teachings that were given 1400 years ago. Tell me, Rahman, is there any other man-made law uh, that is still ongoing from that era? Yeah, no. Like like you said as well with the um, the gun laws, they're ever changing, and the Second Amendment has been reformed, let's say every thirty to forty or fifty years um, in the U.S. And uh, in fact, instead of being made stricter over time, it's been made, being made more lenient, which is not the case when it comes to teachings of the Holy Quran, which are um, even if uh, there are, let's say. Um, interpolations, not interpolations specifically in the law, but uh, misinterpretations of the law, then God yeah. has made a case or has has, has uh, himself mentioned in the Quran that I will never let um, the Quran, the teachings of the Quran, um, be misinterpreted or be misled. That will always send reformers or prophets who will keep guiding people to the right path, which is what makes yes. the everlasting teaching. Yes. We used to have Valiullah, uh, for, for the listeners who don't know Valiullah, uh, Valiullah, the you know, the literal translation is, um, you know, friends friend of Allah, mm. uh, basically meaning, you know, very pious people, saints, so-called, you, you could say, in, in Christian terminology. Uh, they've been coming uh, into the uh, eras, into, into different eras of Islam, uh, until the promised Messiah, uh, unless the Islam came, and Khulafa after that. So, so, so there were always certain people in the world, in the Islamic world, uh, to guide, uh, to guide the Ummah, uh, you know, according to the to the true teachings of of Islam, of the of the Holy Prophet and of God Almighty. Uh, but coming back to the gun violence, uh, I, I think I think the issue issue here is well, since you've mentioned that this has been around for a very very long time. And what yeah. actually we see is that back in the 1800s and even within the 1900s, there were restrictions to um, carry guns in public, certain public places, etc. Yeah. Um, but we are seeing as a consequence of a, like bringing it back to a godless society, um, we are seeing these laws being criticised. And in, even instead of things getting better, people are being more vocal about the permissibility of carrying guns. And now it's almost at the stage where there's absolutely no restriction on where certain people can carry their weapons and guns in public, um, yeah. which is absolutely scary. And even when you hear about the tragic cases of um, school shootings, which are so, so prevalent in the US, um, from certain um, uh, members of parliament, you have condemnation, but straight after that, you have uh, them expressing their need to defend gun laws and also saying that the reason why these mass, the, the fact that these mass shooters exist and people at this in public exist is exactly the reason why we should have the permissibility of carrying weapons and guns as well, which I think is a circular argument because the, not only that, that then promotes more people having the ability to carry guns um, and uh, committed crimes like that and also um, weaponizing your mass public as well uh, in, in the sense that everyone should have the guns to protect themselves in case something someone else has a gun, your neighbor has a gun and he wants to attack you. You know, it's it's a it's a sort of recurring problem which will keep going on and keep increasing. And the amount of people that then uh, feel forced or obliged to carry weapons or hold a weapon for their self-protection will keep increasing in the U.S. as well. 
that's that's right uh let's just think about it and and what's the underlying issue do, do you think you have to carry a gun in the uk i don't think so why why do you think that because you feel safe hmm. you know that first of all other people other public uh members uh don't carry a gun secondly you have trust in your policing you have trust in those people uh, to keep you safe, don't you? Yep. Maybe that's the issue in America. So, so I think where... I think at this point you can actually compare the case of UK and US quite well because there was a stage where guns were permitted to be carried yeah. uh, in the UK, and if if you look back not too long ago, actually. Um, in 1987, there was a firearms amnesty, meaning that there was a massacre in Hungerford where someone went around shooting 16 people. He killed 16 people. And simply due to the appeal from the government to reduce the amount of weapons and give up the weapons, 48,000 firearms were given up by the public, which is, which is a huge amount. But then it wasn't until 1997 that a law was made to ban handguns. And this was after the 1996 Dunblane school shooting, which is a place in Scotland, in Stirling, where mm-hmm. a person went into a school, uh, as you see in the US, um, and they shot and killed 16 children and their teacher. After yeah. this, obviously, the, the UK government um, were very strict and quick to act upon this. And within the next year, they decided to ban handguns. But like like, like uh, many people in the US say is that what's the point of banning weapons or guns, handguns, automatic rifles, whatever it is, when they're so widely distributed now? If you put a ban now, people will still own them and they'll still be distributed across society. But we see that um, within, after that 1997, we saw the, um, there's not been a single case of a mass shooting as such take place in the UK ever since. And in 2003, when there was another killing of two um, children, uh, two people, Charlene uh, Ellis and Letitia Shakespeare, another 43,000 firearms were collected by the police and the government. So it's possible to get the guns off the streets. It's clearly evident from the example that we have in the UK. Yes. This is the case. And let's put this into perspective. We're saying that, um, let, actually, let me check quickly. What are the numbers uh, when it comes to gun violence taking place in the UK? So, okay, so since 1996, we've had seven cases, okay, in total in what it's been, what, um, 27 years? And in 27 years, we've had seven cases of mass shooting in the UK or gun violence of that nature. But in the US, in the first three months of 2023 alone, just up to March, we've had 130 mass shootings in three months. Now compare that, 130 mass shootings in three months to seven mass shootings in 27 years. The difference that gun law came when gun law was placed in and the difference it makes. I, I I think you know I'm I'm no politician I'm no expert in this but uh, Ron, if if you look at you know if you, the, the points that you've mentioned you know the events that you've mentioned um, what the UK government has done uh, the US government can do it hmm. uh, but there might be some factors that benefit the US government. Um, you know, um, to keep the guns there, uh, to keep selling them. Uh, so, so it's really, you know, what uh, has has a Muslim um, sort of the world head of the Indian community has said, 
that every uh, every politician has to strive for peace. Mm. Uh, uh, when 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 all politicians in the world uh, start aiming for peace, uh, I think all of these issues will be resolved. Uh, and you know, I, I, you know, I don't want to stuck. Yeah, as part, as, as, part of, as part of striving for peace as well, I think um, yeah. a major role it comes into weapons and uh, not just weapons of uh, handguns and guns, but also weapons of mass destruction, etc. Um, and larger um, of that aspect as well. We need to call out um, and condemn those who are profiteering of these businesses yeah. as well. And as a consequence of this, they're not only um, making, but also promoting people to use yeah. these they're selling these um, not just in their own countries but around the world as well and in doing do they are perpetuating a circle of violence an yeah. ongoing circle of violence I, I, I think I think Zerohan you know this, this is my personal view mm. okay Rahan. Uh, I believe that you should be skilled in in all aspects in, in all skills okay mm-hmm. so for example you know you should be able to drive a car yep. you should be able ride a horse mm-hmm. you should be able to, to perform certain things um maybe and maybe you know, in a safe environment like in the uk or somewhere else you go through courses where you can learn for example how to uh how to use a bow and arrow yep uh how to use uh, for example you know you, you, you see a big trend in japanese sportsmanship yep uh, and, and and there's there's there are courses where you can do them in, in, in order to learn how to do it properly. The army, for example, is is a very good place to learn how to handle a firearm. To be honest, yep. uh, I, I, I was listening to this uh, podcast uh, quite recently. I, I, I don't know if you know the person, uh, Mark Billy Billingham. Uh, former SAS, uh, you, you've probably heard of the show SAS Who Dares Wins. Yeah, uh, uh, he, he's one of the hosts there, and and he actually he spoke about what he had to go through before he actually ever shot a gun. So, so the point was that he was in the field. Um, I, I believe it was Belize or something like that, and, and he didn't shoot a single uh, bullet. For months and months and months, and and why is that? Because he was trained for several years to understand uh, that that is the last resort, mm. uh, and, and and having that uh, you know understanding and that knowledge, education, not only in guns but generally in everything, you know, even in a bow and arrow or whatever, in a crossbow, whatever you want in, in swords. Uh, using a board or something or you know you have to have that understanding you have to have that knowledge you have to have that education um so i think it's possible uh to teach everyone uh who's willing to learn uh when to use it and what not when not to use it i think that's a and good now, point i think i think self-defense is very very important and yeah. but like you mentioned that when it comes to certain um, specialists so the army and the SAS these people are trained to use their weapons in the yeah. in a as ethical manner as possible you can say that right so yes. we we recognize that in islam 
that Islam is a faith that tries to promote peace around the world and it has does have the, the laws or the teachings in a way which peace can be established. However, it recognises also the fact that conflict and war does take place um, due to certain reasons and it gives you the laws and the rules of war as well in that case and yeah. how, how to fight that and what, what to do there. And like you said, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, actually encouraged things like archery, horse riding, yeah. um, his companions, they used to take part in grappling and wrestling themselves. So physically, staying physically fit was necessary, especially at that time when conflict and war was so prevalent and they themselves had to f- fight a lot of defensive wars. It was necessary, obviously, for them to be trained and be able to um, take part in these conflicts, particularly when they were taking part, um, fighting against armies, which were one much larger in number and also much more prepared when it came to equipment, horses, camels, um, the equip- uh, the weapons, the swords, the shields, etc. So it does make a huge, huge difference, like you mentioned, yeah, you're right. But, uh, Rahan, but Islam only teaches, uh, only allows you uh, to wage war in defense. Exactly, yeah. Which, which is very important. So, so you learn those skills not to attack someone mm. uh, in the first place, but to defend your home. Yep. Now, that understanding, that knowledge, is very important because we see certain, you know, certain groups and extremists who don't, don't, who don't have this belief uh, that the Holy Prophet, the uh, Christian blessings of Allah, were about to be upon him, uh, made sure that his companions understood that they are only doing this uh, to defend their homeland if they ever get attacked. Yep. You, you, you see that the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, didn't retaliate uh, against the Meccans for 12 years. Yeah. It, 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 it was only after he fled from Mecca, he went to Medina, and then they chased him. Then he defended his home, his his uh, his town, his his, his uh, you know his people in Medina. Yeah, so it's, even in the example, well, particularly in the example of uh, the Holy Prophet Sallallahu where he they were forced or they were compelled to um, wage a, a battle, a, a defensive battle, we learn the uh, rules of ethical warfare uh, yes. and the rules associated with this. But the yes. primary focus of his mission and what he tried to establish was peace in, in society. And if you want to see the example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions in this day and age, we believe there is a representative, an ambassador uh, in, in a way of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and that's the fifth caliph of the Prophet Messiah, peace be upon him, which is Hazrat Mizah Masroor Ahmed, who's based in London, uh, in Tilford himself. And when you look at his message, you find not a single promotion of any war. In fact, when, yeah. even when the members of his community are persecuted, he asks them to bear with patience and, and, and other methodology rather than picking up weapons. Um, and you can see that in over the last 20 years, so he's been in his... Uh, 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 as a station of the Khalif for 20 years now of uh, his life. Um, and every single year, every single moment, you'd see an urge, uh, a call towards peace. And most recently, we mentioned at the start of this show as well, literally this week, um, His Holiness has asked to start a new campaign where he's urging voices for peace to step forward and call for peace and ceasefire when it comes to conflicts around the world because we cannot bear to see this uh, spreading into a global conflict, right? Which will have absolutely drastic consequences um, if we are seeing a World War Three take place in this day and age, particularly due to the weapons that have been manufactured now, um, whether that's uh, guns or handguns or all the way up to weapons of mass destruction as well. Rahan, you know, you've touched this topic beautifully. 
we see now through through the 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 arms of war in this day and age are not guns, mm. uh, bow and arrow, swords, etc. It is the pen. This is an intellectual war. This is this is a war to educate people. Now, it's it's time to express our voice uh, through writings. I be, uh, you know, according to the Promised Messiah, Islam, according to the Caliph. Uh, so you know he he has been urging us to write numerous articles uh, to world leaders to to the public to teach them the true teachings of Islam to teach them that the only way for humanity to survive is through peace. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know this this channel this this radio channel that we're on, uh, Voice of Islam. And that is one that that is the biggest aim uh, of 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 our channel is to educate the uh, the listeners uh, of the true teachings of Islam of showing that through love and compassion uh, we can coexist in any society, no matter what our belief is, no matter which religion we follow. If if we really you know try to this with love and compassion it's possible yeah and like I said there's a uh, obviously according to my opinion there's no greater champion of peace uh, than his holiness Mizan Rahmat currently in the day's day and age and even with the current conflict that's taking place in the world we're seeing in Palestine and Israel and we discussed uh, around the um, what's been happening there at, earlier in the show today as well and uh, it's particularly in regards to some of the um, numbers that are coming through um, he's also urged us to one use the power of prayer because we are strong believers yes. <clears throat> in the power of prayer. Even tomorrow here in our mosque in Morden, the Battle for Two Mosque, we are holding a prayer for peace event where we've asked the public and members of our community to come along to speak about their feelings and what they think and to urge everyone to pray together to call for a ceasefire and a long-lasting peace uh, in the long term. And in the same way, he's asked us not to... <clears throat> encouraged the fighting, the conflict, etc. When he talks to certain people to stop the conflict, he's particularly referring to leaders and nation um, people who have the capability and power to do so. But for us, the people who always feel, um, in some circumstances, we all often feel helpless, you know, seeing scenes from across the world um, in our social media when we're scrolling through, um, that when we're being exposed to those things as well, we feel um, quite, uh, it's upsetting, obviously, and feel, feel helpless for the people. But he still tells us that there's also things that we can do. And like you mentioned that's the um, defending those people using the pen one thing is you can create awareness which a lot of people have been doing and in the age of information and social media um, any kind of misconceptions that the media is trying to portray or um, a double-sided story that's coming through it's easily removed now from uh, in the circumstances that we are in so that's something that we can take part in and also like you said we uh, the youth of our community We've been encouraged to write to every local MP across the country of our local areas to urge them to call for a ceasefire as well and put pressure in that sense. So these are the kind of um, initiatives that are absolutely necessary, in my opinion, in this day and age. And this is truly the only way that we can establish um, peace through our leaders and our members of parliament, etc. Yes. Uh, one, you know, uh, another thing that I wanted to touch on uh, was... Uh, 
the teachings of the Holy Prophet mm-hmm. and what, what you mentioned it quite uh, well we touched the topic uh, you touched the aspect that what is the war ethics mm. now the nowadays what we see is when a war is being reached get uh, out trees being preserved, uh, you know, women and uh, children are being targeted. Uh, wherever in the world, Holy uh, Prophet said that you can't, uh, you know, in a war you can't fight against an elderly person, a woman, a child. You're not allowed to cut on trees. It's, it's, it's gone to that base where, where animal rights were given uh, 1,400 years ago, 1,500 years ago, mm-hmm. by the Holy during a war, uh, which, which we don't see in this day and age. Uh, is, will it be the Western countries or the Eastern countries or the Middle Eastern countries? No, no one has that uh, compassion towards, um, forget about humans, uh, you know, the 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 world itself, the, you know, the trees, the animals, etc. So, so we really have to kind of go back uh, basis of, of the Holy Prophet Sallallahu No, you're, you're, uh, you're absolutely right there because we see during his lifetime, he was very, um, there was also a lot of differences amongst the tribes, the different religions, the faith groups, um, and there was animosity as well. But he, as a leader, he was appointed the leader of Medina. And one thing he'd always ensure was to write treaties amongst the different yeah. tribes and the different people so that that way he, he strongly in Islam we strongly believe in promises and covenants and we must keep to those um, otherwise we won't be, we'll be held accountable by God himself for that reason um, we see in this day and age it wasn't until the, let's say the last 50-60 years where a lot of the um, things that the Holy Prophet peace be upon him decre- declared as a war crime weren't implemented in, in the EU the West and the UK through the Geneva Conventions um, and the Rome uh, Statute and even when it comes to the constitution of the US we know the um, Franklin mentioned that he was influenced by the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and the laws and uh, covenants that he had placed put in place with people 1,400 years ago. So we can we can in a way say that the Holy Prophet peace be upon him was a peace revolutionary, right? He was he was yeah. well ahead of his time that people yeah. didn't thousands of years uh, later caught up with. Um, and this is something that we try to promote in this day and age. And I think one issue here as well I want to bring up is that. Often we see in a lot of conflicts around the world is that the the, the oppressor, in a sense, um, knows that certain things are war crimes according to the laws that are in place now, but they still carry on um, doing those acts, rather despite being condemned uh, and being reprimanded and being told to stop right by other world leaders or the public, etc. So it's openly being done now. Even during World War Two, it was absolutely clear who was committing a war crime, where they were taking place, but. People didn't want to stop because at that stage they thought that this is this is what what we're going to do now and no one can stop us. And I think the only way that this can be stopped or eradicated is if people turn towards God, because when it comes to man-made laws, um, if we believe that there's a way of us getting away from this or that we are not going to be held accountable for this, we will do it. Right? We are human nature. Like if a person is a thief and he knows that he's going to get away from the law using false evidence then he will keep committing that crime again and again because he's not being held accountable but until we actually believe in a god who is al-kabir which means all-knowing he sees and our inner and our outer condition and he will hold, hold hold us accountable on a day 
then we will automatically refrain from committing even the smallest of sins or even causing displeasure to our neighbours, our family members, let alone committing crimes or war crimes even of that nature. So it's a, it's a return towards, uh, it's a consequence of a godless society which is causing us to commit these um, things and where we're, in a way a lot of people are starting to see other uh, uh, have a very inhumane perspective of the world and they don't even see the people around them as human beings um, and are trying to justify the killing of a certain group of people um, even as, as though they deserve it but uh, I think Zishan will have to um, wrap up the show there and we're reaching towards our end here before our news round but we've had a lot of discussions today we've spoken about the new T-levels we've covered several news rounds um, within gun and knife crime as well we've, we've criticised we've said that uh, uh, certain um, laws but we've also said um, the need for conflict in certain areas uh, defensive wars at the time of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him and how he was a revolutionary and a champion and a call a man of peace um, as he's known as the mercy for mankind um, and the influence that he had on the world and trying to establish peace. And we hope that people heed his call. We hope that people he heed the call of His Holiness Hazrat Mizam Masrur Ahmed as voices for peace. Thank you for listening. <laughs>